Well, this morning we're, we're continuing to draw our focus together in on the glory of God. Sole Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory, as Paul says in Ephesians 3.21, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so the glory of God is this, is this overarching purpose of God. We talked about this last week, but you could pull on any thread in Scripture and it's going to be connected to the glory of God. God in His very being is a God of glory. His, his glory, the, the outshining of all of His perfections, it is, it is intrinsic to the essence of who He is as God. God's glory is the first and the last cause of why he created the world and everything in it. And his glory has been progressively revealed and and it's been expressed throughout history and will continue to be through all eternity. And so these are, this is what we see the scriptures teach about the glory of God. Therefore, the ultimate end of all humanity is, is to glorify God, it's, it's by, to glorify Him by recognizing His glory, by reveling in His glory, and then ultimately by reflecting it, as we're going to see today. And so, so the glory of God isn't just why we exist as a church, though it is, but it's why everything exists. We said this last week. And so everything exists ultimately for this doxological purpose. Uh, John Piper, he rightly calls this... Uh, he calls it a continental divide in theology. If you, if you really believe this, he says, if you believe that everything exists for God's glory, then all rivers of your thinking run towards God. If you do not believe this, all rivers run towards man. And that is, that is true. So as we sat at, set out on this 50th year of, uh, of ministry as a, as a church, of worshiping and gathering and growing together and going with the gospel together as this local church. We, we, we want our thoughts about the church to run continually towards God. And that's why we're reminding ourselves once again of this ultimate purpose, reason for our existence, the glory of God. So we're looking at the glory of God in our, in our gatherings around the gospel. We talked about that last week. And today, looking at the glory of God in our, in our growing together in the gospel and next week the glory of God in our going together with the gospel and so are the rivers of your thoughts about this gathering running towards God today as we talked about last week are your thoughts about this gathering on God and and how great and glorious he is and holy he is and all we've been singing today and and are your thoughts upon how much you need him and how much he has provided for you in Christ. Or the, is that where your thoughts are today? I pray that they are. Or are your thoughts about you as you come into this gathering? And upon what you can do for yourself and what you're, you can get out of this. Or what, how you might merit um, favor with God. Get him on your good side today by, by your religious fervor. And just being here on a rainy, cold day when you could have been at home, but you're here. So surely God's got to be happy with you for that. Is, is that how you're thinking? To borrow language from Hebrews 12, what we were looking at last week, are you thinking about this gathering like you're coming to Mount Sinai? Or are you thinking about this gathering like you're coming to Mount Zion? This place of grace and glory. 
Are the thoughts, are, are the rivers of your thoughts running towards God when it comes to this matter of growth, what we're looking at today? I mean, when we talk about spiritual growth or Christian growth, for many in the church, we, it, it basically gets equated with kind of like personal self-improvement, personal development. And so I need to better myself by doing these spiritual disciplines or by learning these habits or by avoiding these other bad habits or uh, being more committed and, and more resolved. And, and so we think like that. If we aren't consciously believing and embracing that doxological purpose of God in which all of our thoughts are directed to him, then we will begin to think that growth in Christ is something that comes from us. It's something that we can produce in and of ourselves, that the rivers of our thoughts will, will run towards man when we talk about growth. And if we're honest, they often do. Now, obviously, we are involved in the process of growth. <laughs> There are actions that we take. There are actions we have to take uh, to grow. And there are loads of imperatives in the New Testament exhorting us to, uh, to, 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 to these actions and ways to think, ways to speak, ways to, to act uh, together uh, in order to grow. But we, are, but we are absolutely and utterly powerless without the Lord. It is, it is His work. God is the one who provides the growth and therefore God is the one who gets all the glory and so going growing together in Christ it's not something we make happen by focusing on growing focus making it the focus of our lives no that's not it instead our focus together is to be upon the one who supplies the growth that's what we're going to see today it's not it's not to be primarily focusing on our actions, on our, our techniques, our efforts, our resolve to better ourselves. It's ultimately our focus is to be upon the glory of Jesus Christ. And so verse 18, which is where we're going to zero in this morning, we're going to get there uh, in a little bit here. But, but this is, this is the, what we're going to key in on. And he says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. There's, there's so many passages we could go to and see this connection uh, in, in, in Scripture. Let me just give you one other. Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. This is, this is how we grow together. And he says it's by holding fast to the head to Jesus Christ, to holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, it grows with a growth that is from God. So what we want to see is we want our thoughts about growth to be running towards God as we see it under this banner of the glory of God in all things. We have to. Everything's got to be under that under that ultimate aim and so most most of the growth that happens in our lives in our in our church in our lives together it isn't something we always feel or experience in the moment you realize that like well i'm watching like a kid just sitting there watching himself I, i'm growing my mom and dad keep telling me i'm growing sometimes it feels like that to parents like you can watch them grow uh, hour and hour talking about that just for the service, but you know you, you get see a kid that's just kind of like watching and waiting and seeing, am I, am I growing right now? But it's not like that. It, we're typically not aware as it's happening, 
But later we can look back and say, wow, look at what God has done. Look, look, at, look at what he's done. He's, he gave growth. Soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory. And so our perennial focus is to, is to be on Jesus. It's to be on trusting him. It, it, it's only as our focus returns over and over and over and over again to Christ, not our Christ-likeness, that's not our ultimate focus, but our focus is on Christ. It's when we focus on him that we truly become more and more like him. And so that's the sermon conclusion. Now we're not done, so don't get too excited. Uh, but that, that, I didn't want to, to get to the end and, and let that be cut short. And so I literally copied and pasted the end of my sermon to the beginning uh, last night. And so now we're going to backfill and see how we get to that in, in the context of 2 Corinthians 3 here. So Paul, Paul starts the chapter, what Van read a moment ago. He starts the chapter by saying that it's God, it's not men, it's not people who, who make uh, make us adequate ministers of the new covenant. Make people adequate ministers of the new covenant. So Paul has been facing this criticism and relentless criticism from these people who've been attacking him, these so-called super apostles, as they're referred to elsewhere in this letter. Uh, Paul calls them false apostles in other places. But these guys, they're, they're going around trying to discredit Paul and his ministry and demean him and so they, they say things like he doesn't have the oratory that we have he doesn't have a grasp of the of the language like we do he can't use words like we can he look at him there's nothing special about Paul he doesn't he doesn't even walk around with any letters of recommendation from important people and so they're, they're, they're saying these things to, to, to drag Paul down and, and, and they boast about themselves. Don't you realize how significant we are and how significant our ministry is? I mean, after all, we have these letter, letters of recommendation from all of these people affirming that we are, we are the tops. And so what does Paul say? He begins, he says, we don't, we don't need letters of recommendation. You yourselves are our letter written by the Spirit on human hearts, it's it's kind of like I, I get it. I get it's, I don't know if you think this way like I do. Maybe you're not as cynical as I am, but I, I see these. You know, the, the the Christian book publishing industry is something special, and they are pumping out stuff all the time. And and every time this book, new book, comes out by this you know young writer, preacher, pastor. You'll have these 25 people who say, this is the best book that's ever been written on this subject in the history of the world. I mean, this is kind of how they, they, they prop it up. And, and I'm thinking, can't a book just stand on its own merits? <laughs> Does it have to, do you have to prop it up like that? And that, that's sort of what Paul, Paul's suspicious of this, these people that are carrying around these letters of recommendation and saying, no, the, 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 the letter, the only letter we need is the work of the Spirit in the lives of people. That's, that's all we care about. And so Paul, he's not, he's not just reacting here to a personal slight. Like, he's just, yeah, no, that would probably roll off his back like, you know, water off a duck's back or something. But he realizes there is more at stake here than, than being personally demeaned or, or attacked or by to him or the other apostles. What's at stake is the very nature of the gospel. It's not just the messenger, it's, it's, it's the message that's really being attacked. So these, these super apostles, they were, they were claiming uh, to have great authority and great power, and, and they did that by appealing to both Christ and Moses. 
That's what's going on behind the scenes. They're pointing people back to the old covenant, to the law, and therefore and diminishing the, the fullness of Christ and what he's accomplished. So that's what really concerns Paul. So Paul makes this astonishing claim in this chapter, not just that his ministry is greater than these false apostles. No, he, he says this remarkable thing that his ministry and the apostles and those ministers of the new covenant, it supersedes the ministry even of Moses. So he, he goes on to contrast the, the new covenant that's been inaugurated by Christ's blood with the old covenant under Moses, and he's showing why the new covenant is even greater. And so this is one of Paul's consistent themes throughout his writings. This is, this is why many people think maybe... Uh, some people think that Paul wrote the letter of Hebrews. I'm not sure that he did, but we looked at this. Uh, we were in Hebrews 12 last week, and, and we, again, acknowledge this is one of the big themes, the superiority of Christ, the superiority of the new covenant in Christ. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about here. So look in verse 6 again, 2 Corinthians 3. He starts making this clear there. He says, we are ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, so, if any of you have ever taught before, I know many of you have in school system or just even in Sunday school classes, if you've taught children, if you've taught adults before, one of the things that you often do in explaining what something is, 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 is to say, now, it is not that, but it is this. And so it's not that, it's this. We, we use those kind of comparisons and contrast. So, if you want to explain the difference to a little kid or an adult between a horse and a camel, um, if you, you, you'll say something like, yes, they both have four legs, they both have hair, they both have these long tongues, and they like to lick people. And, but listen, this one doesn't have one or two humps. That one does. So this one's a horse, that one's a camel. So you, you're, you're making those contrasting statements. And that's what Paul's doing in this chapter, in a sense. He's drawing this series of contrasts between the, the ministry of Moses and the law and the ministry of Jesus Christ and the gospel. It's not the letter. It's not of the letter, he says. It's, it's of the Spirit. The letter. This is Paul, one of his favorite expressions for talking about the Mosaic law, the set of, of written commandments. And what he's saying is on its own, it's, it's just dead letter. It's, it's just a letter, the letter, the law. It, it, it told you what to do, told you what not to do. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. But the law is powerless in itself. It, it, it's, it cannot give you the power you need to do what it tells you to. That's what he's saying. The law, the law is it's not the letter, it's the spirit. He says, he goes on, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter can condemn the letter pronounces doom. That's what he means when he says the letter, it, it, the law kills. But it, it's incapable of bringing salvation or of giving life. It's only the Spirit who can give life. And so Paul repeatedly makes this contrast throughout his epistles between the letter and the Spirit. Just listen to a few passages. Romans chapter 7, verse 6, he says, Now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It's a horse. This is a camel. 
Romans 2.29, he says, true circumcision is a matter of the heart, not, excuse me, true circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. This is over and over in his letters. And so Paul's not saying, listen, please hear me. He's not saying that there's something wrong with the law. There's something defective with God's commandments. That's not it at all. There's nothing wrong with God's commandments. They cannot be improved upon. He'll say in Romans 7, the law is holy and just and good. And so we read, oh, I love your law. And that's, that's good. But they were simply never given to enable us to obey them. That's, that's not the purpose of them, to, to keep them. They, they were always pointing forward to Christ, and to our need for him and for his work on our behalf. And so it's not that the law itself was bad. It's that we, we are bad. And that's what the law is telling us. And therefore the law is our judge and our executioner and not a source of life to us. And so re- remember how Paul puts it in, in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verses 2 to 4, he says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so that the glory of the gospel is that what the law could not do God has done for us that's, that's what Paul's highlighting and so throughout his letters you're going to, you, we see Paul constantly combating this, this cancerous teaching that, that, that was always trying to make its way and infiltrate the church and it's this is that this false hope of thinking that we can somehow earn life for ourselves by our own obedience it's lethal it's lethal trying to earn or, or maintain God's favor by keeping the letter I hope that you're not trying to do that I hope that you're not if you are trying to do that let me just say you're not trying hard enough you're not those who think that they can establish and keep their standing before God by their obedience, those who think that the gospel amounts to do better, try harder, keep the law, you know what? They actually have the lowest view of the law because it's a view of the law that sees it as doable, as attainable, as achievable, at least relatively speaking, more than others or better than I used to, but listen, the law is this standard of utter perfection. It's, it's this highest bar. We can't achieve it. And, and so once you really try to do it, once you try to, to, to establish standing before God based upon your obedience, your morality, your, your trying harder, you'll, you'll discover what Paul discovered. And what did he say? It's killing me. It's killing me. It's making me miserable. Why? Because the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit's life. And so let me just say, if it's likely there are some today here whose, whose eyes remain blinded to the fullness of what God has provided for you in Jesus Christ. Is that you? 
Paul talked about, he'll talk about later in this chapter, that there were those in his own day who still, who still had a veil over their hearts. Whenever the law of Moses was read, he said, they, they, it's like this veil is still covering their hearts. They can't see, can't see its fulfillment in Christ. So you may be here today and the veil still covers your heart. You could have been coming here a long time or you could have just popped in today. But you can't see, you cannot see the glory of the gospel of Christ and all that he's provided for you. You may be thinking Jesus came and I know he's a, he was a good man and he came to give an example to us and how we can live better lives, a kind of a new way of life, a better way of living. But you can't see that, no, that's not it. It's him, it's nothing. You, you don't yet grasp the fact that Jesus alone is the one who saves. And you still think that the way to be enough before God is by keeping commandments, by being a good person, by at least being better than other people. In the next chapter, uh, Paul's going to say this about those who can't comprehend the glory of Christ. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Is your, is your heart veiled today? Uh, what do we do then? What's the solution? We go back to chapter 3. We see it in verse 14. He says it's, it's only through Christ. Only through Christ is it, is the veil taken away. And then in verse 16, he says, but, but when one turns to the Lord, turns to the Lord, that's code, I believe, trust in the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil is removed. So maybe you think, well, well, let me see the glory, and then I'll believe. But Scripture says, when you believe, you'll see clearly. <laughs> it's not seeing is believing, it's believing is seeing. That's what Scripture testifies to. So I implore you, if, the, if there's a veil that remains on your heart and you hear these words and this is, it, it seems nonsense and it, it's not, I, I, I beg you to turn to Christ today. Trust in Him. Quit, quit clinging to your goodness, your relative morality, just the fact that you came out on a day like today thinking that that's going to make you enough before God. Let those things go and say no Christ, you've, you've, you've accomplished everything that I could never do on my own. Trust in him. Are you weary? It's, a, it's an exhausting way to live, isn't it? We've been there. We've all been there. All of us who are in Christ now and trusting in him, we, we were there and we still find ourselves kind of falling back into that way of thinking. But, but, but Jesus talks about those who are weary and heavy laden. It, 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 you're worn out trying to be enough before God. What does Jesus say? He says, come to me. And I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. So I invite you, if, you've not, if your trust is not in Christ, come to him today and find rest for your souls. But remember, all right, bring it in here. Paul's, he is writing to Christians. He's, he acknowledges that there are those who still have this veil over their hearts and, 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 and there's this implicit exhortation, turn to Christ and, and it can be removed. But, but he's writing to believers and he's writing to Christians who are in danger of being influenced by these, quote, super apostles who are, who are trying to diminish the glory of the gospel by calling people 
back, calling true believers back to this message of try harder. That's why he's making this comparison here. He's leading believers away from the peace and the joy and the freedom of Zion that we talked about last week and back to Mount Sinai where there's anxiety and there's bondage. And this is, this is the pressure that these believers are facing. And so, so, so they're thinking maybe we're justified by Christ, but we're going to be transformed by Moses. We're, we're, our salvation is established by, by the grace of Christ, but it's going to be sustained by the letter. That's... That was apparently sort of the message that was being communicated to this church. And so Paul dealt with these kinds of questions in other assemblies. He dealt with this in the, with the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, he says, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so Paul, Paul's... Paul's wanting to get to the same location, but he takes a different route to get there in 2 Corinthians, and, and, and they're facing similar temptations. And we don't have time to linger in the context anymore. We need to get to verse 18, which is our focus of today. But he, he's going to continue to make this contrast between this comparatively lesser, fading glory of the old covenant with the superior, permanent glory of the new covenant in verses 7 to 14. He's going to point back to this fa- that famous scene in Exodus 33 and 34 we talked a little bit about this last week and this is where Moses asks to see the glory of God and God mercifully hides him in a cave as his glory passes by and Moses just sees God's back as it were and and but even with that little glimpse of the Lord's back his his face is glowing as he comes down from the mountain and rejoins the people of Israel and the people are afraid and so Moses put on a veil to hide the reflection of his glory until it faded away and so he's using that he's driving this point home how much more glorious is the new covenant look 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 over to chapter 4 verse 6 Second uh, Corinthians, God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. It's so much better. That's what he's saying. Moses saw God's back and, and even that had faded away. We get to look at his face in a spiritual sense now. We get to look at his face because we have the knowledge of Christ and it's in him that all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so after, after contrasting these old new covenants, the letter and, and the spirit, the law, the gospel, he, he applies it to these Christians in this church, these Christians who are tempted to look somewhere other than Christ for growth for transformation, to make it about something else. Maybe it's laws, maybe it's rules, it's morality, it's rituals. And what does he say? He's, after he's made this contrast, horse, camel, he's made this crystal clear for them. What does he say? Now the Lord is the Spirit, verse 17. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In contrast to the letter, the law, there's bondage, there's terror, There's anxiety. And then he says in verse 18, And we all, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We get to to look at the glory of God in the face of Christ 
face to face with completely unveiled faces. And as we do that, we're conformed more and more into his likeness. It's not like Moses who got a, a brief glimpse at, at, at one time and, and, it, and so that reflected glory began to fade quickly over time. No, we get to look and look and look and look and behold and see him and that glory just transforms us. That's what, that's what we see. Now, in eighth grade English, I was talking, I don't know if it was a staff meeting, and I've probably, I may have shared this before. I know I've, I've mentioned this in some context, but eighth grade English was my only, my only F that I ever got on a report card in a six-week period. Was that the case for you, Eric? I didn't think so. Uh, I didn't make straight A's, but I, I, I did pretty well. But it, it came, my one F came when we were learning to diagram sentences. And I hated it. I could not get it. And I didn't really try to get it, but I thought if I could just get by until, the, but it just, it didn't. It, it just got piling up and I was so overwhelmed. I had to stay after school for weeks to, to get help from Mrs. Sellers in my eighth grade English, my eighth grade English teacher, and, and eventually got my grade raised to, I think, a B minus or something by the end of the, end of the year. But I, I thought, after I finished eighth grade English, I'll never, ever, ever have to diagram another sentence in my life. And I was so, so thankful. And I didn't until I went to seminary. And the, and the first thing that all new students had to do at the seminary I attended out in California, they had to take an English proficiency test every incoming student. If we failed it, we had to take a semester-long English refresher course, which sounds just humiliating to me. <laughs> I wasn't worried, though. I thought this is probably something that in international students, and we had a lot of international students, English was their second language. This is probably just something, they didn't want to single them out, so they made everybody take it, but hey, you speak English, you'll be fine. And they're, they're the only ones that are really concerned about it. So I opened up the test booklet, and as you can probably guess, the whole test was sentence diagramming. Haven't seen this stuff since eighth grade. Had no clue what to do. I don't even, I don't even remember that I even attempted to, to do this test. Let's just say I ended up in the English refresher course with, <laughs> with all the international students and a few other slackers. Uh, after that class, though... And especially as I started studying the Greek, New Testament Greek, Biblical Greek, I came to love sentence diagramming, and still do, really. And, and, and I, suddenly it, it mattered to me. It, I cared more about it as I started studying the Scriptures, and because it, it, helps, it helps me understand the Scriptures. You can even see it in English. But paying close attention to sentence structure and grammar and, and wording and phrasing, relationships between words and phrases, all those things that you see in diagramming. So if, let me just I say all that. If you diagram this sentence here, if you diagram verse 18, you, you, you can see that the heart of the sentence, the, the basic sentence, the, the subject and the verb, is, is, is just this. It's we all are being transformed. That's the basic sentence. Everything else is just putting meat on those bones. But that's, that's the essence of what he's saying. We all are being transformed. And so I, I want to I keep that in mind as we, as we put some of that meat on the structure in the few minutes we have left. Don't worry, we're not, that was not all introduction and now we're getting to the sermon. 
uh, we're, th- this is by design. We had to set this up or we missed the whole point of this one verse. But let me just say five, we'll just kind of take this sentence as it comes. First thing I'll say is we are being transformed together. We're being transformed together. He says we all, we all. When the old covenant was given, what do you remember? One man, Moses, he, he acted as a mediator between God and the people. He, he was the only one who got to catch that, even that partial glimpse of God's glory on that mountain. And, and he was the only one who, who, whose face shone with that glory where he reflected the glory of God. Moses alone, the, the lawgiver, he was the only one who beheld God in that sense while all the people waited below and they got to kind of hear about it secondhand. All they got to see was this fading reflection of God's glory on Moses' face. And even that terrified them and it was hidden under a veil. Listen, not so any longer. Not so with the new covenant. All earthly mediators are done away with. We, we all get to behold the glory of Christ. Every believer, that's our, that's our birthright as, as children of God now. We, we are all being transformed by the Spirit as we see, as we behold the glory of Christ. That's what he's saying. And we're, and we're being transformed together. It happens as a group. It's interesting, the, the grammar there. We all collectively with unveiled what? Faces? With unveiled face. It's, it's like it's seeing, and this, isn't this interesting? As you look through the New Testament and you see growth, you see transformation, I'm not denying that we grow individually as believers. Obviously, that's the case. Individual members of the body were growing up in Christ and, and all that case. But the, the accent, the emphasis in the New Testament is on, is on us growing together. The Lord isn't preparing a bunch of brides for Christ. He's preparing his bride for the bridegroom. And so, so the Lord is, he, he, the, the normal way the New Testament talks about growth and transformation is he's growing his people growing us in community and and again our tendency is to think very individualistically and personalized way about about uh, our sanctification and we can obsess about us and how am i doing the spirit what he's saying he's transforming us together as we behold christ together so we are we all we are being transformed together second we are being transformed by seeing with eyes of faith Seeing with eyes of faith. He says, we all with unveiled face, beholding, this is a little participle, beholding the glory of God. And so we, we all get to look at the glory of God. Yes, it's, di- it's revealed in a way that's different from Moses, the way Moses saw it. It's not a physical manifestation of his glory. It's, it's not a literal radiance that you can see with your eyes. Not yet. But it, it, it's, so it's, it's not something that's going to, you're going to walk out of here and today and your skin's going to be glowing or something like that. And you're going to go, what in the world's going on with you? That's not it. You know what? It's something better. It's something far better. What we, what we have now in the gospel is better than what Moses had on that mountain. It's the same glory. It's not like God had a one glory back then, a very radiant glory. Now it's a Different, no, it's, it's the same glory, but we see it differently than Moses saw it. And so we actually see it in a better way. The glory of God in the Old Testament was manifested in a way that no one could look directly at it and live. 
But what do we see? In Christ, the glory is manifest in the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. And it's only in seeing it that we do live. We live. In other words, the glory we behold is, is not that totally incomprehensible, just where we, we can't communicate incommunicable radiance of God and, and all of his manifestations of his, of his excellence are, are displayed in this brightness. It's not that. It's the glory of God we behold in Christ. John 1.14, this, this is the purpose of the incarnation. We have, he says, John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John as John's writing this letter, or this, this uh, gospel account, he, he has personally witnessed the physical manifestation of Christ's glory. He saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration, it would be later, but he would, he would see it in this vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1. But notice how he describes Christ's glory again in John 1, 14. He says nothing about physical radiance or visible glow. That wasn't it. What he emphasizes is his glory is full of grace and truth. So when Christ is, is, is revealed more glory than Moses ever saw. And together we, we all, we all have this inexhaustible privilege, inexpressible privilege of seeing that glory in all of its fullness without a veil, with unveiled face. We don't see it with our physical eyes yet. But it's the same glory of his grace and truth that John was talking about. It's, it's a glory that's visible to those of us who have eyes of faith given by the Spirit. It's real glory, brothers and sisters. It's better glory. This is why our constant aim as a church is to point one another to Christ. This is why. It's to set before one another the glories of Jesus Christ every week all the time who is who is full of grace and truth this is what we aim to do because our growth our our transformation the way in which we are being transformed it's not through mechanical legal obedience where we just kind of through raw human effort and our own free will ability to reform ourselves where we make ourselves grow no what conforms us to the image of Christ is seeing him it's believing Him and receiving from Him as He's revealed Himself in the Scriptures. And our life together then is it's about beholding and, 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 and believing Christ, receiving from Christ, reflecting Christ, as we're going to see next. Third, so we're being transformed together, being transformed by, by seeing with eyes of faith. And third, we're being transformed into Jesus' likeness. We're being transformed into the same image. Same image. All of us, as we behold the glory of the Lord by faith, we're, we're being, no sets, being transformed. Passive voice, grammarians. This is God's doing. Not we're transforming ourselves, we're being transformed into the same image, into the likeness of the Lord himself. So Moses' experience on the Mount Sinai, is, as wonderful it was, and Paul says, it was glorious. It's just, it's just pale in comparison to what we have in Christ. But as, 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 as great as that was, it ultimately left him unchanged. 
As far as the reflection of God's glory on his face was concerned, he was, he was unchanged. It was a receding, fading glory. Paul says in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 3, that the reflection of God's glory on Moses' face, he says, quote, it was being brought to an end. It was fading. Finally faded away completely and, and ultimately left no trace upon his skin. But the, but the glory of the new covenant is a better glory. Because instead of receding, the reflection grows stronger and stronger. <coughs> and so the, the glory of, of Moses' face, it was external. It was just skin deep. The light we see in Christ is, is permanent. It's abiding. It's increasing. It's transforming. This is the word, trans, he's trans, we're being transformed. It's, we get our English word metamorphosis out from this word Greek word it's the same same word used to describe what happened to the physical appearance of Jesus at his transfiguration so Matthew 17 he says uh, he was transfigured he was metamorphosed in front of them before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light that's totally different from what happened with Moses on Mount Sinai Moses' shining face was his dim, fading reflection of a glory that did not belong to him. Christ shining wasn't just like a skin-deep reflection. No, it, it represented the unveiling of his true nature. Very different. And so this brightness came from within. It totally transfigured his appearance. It was a metamorphosis, not a cosmetic makeover, kind of like what Moses had on Sinai. And so in the same way, Paul says, we are, we are being completely transfigured by beholding Christ's glory. This, this transfiguration, this transformation, it's, it's not going to be finally complete until we're face to face with Christ in his glory. But, but we are being transformed even now. But there will be that day when with one look, one look at him in heaven and we will be changed into the perfect reflection of his character and glory. First John 3, 2 tells us this. Beloved, we are God's children now. I mean, we are, we, are, we are already with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. We are God's children now, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. There is more to come. But, but this is what I'm saying. The vision of Christ's glory is what the Spirit uses to change us from what we are into what we will be. That's what he's saying. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's not through sheer force of human willpower. It's not a work we can do for ourselves by self-reformation. Again, don't hear me say it's passive. We're not involved. That's not the point. But as the Spirit enables us to see the glory of Christ by faith, it has this powerful, transfiguring influence in our lives. It changes us so that, what, so that we become more and more a reflection of the image of Christ. We are being transformed into the same Image taking on the character and the likeness of the one we behold, the one we worship. That's the only kind of sanctification Scripture knows anything about. I know there are a lot of alternative models in the church today, but this is what the Bible holds forth. Fourth, quickly, we are we are being transformed increasingly. 
from one degree of glory to another. Now, in, in context, keep this in mind. This is in reference to the, this contrast between the glory of the old covenant, the surpassing glory of the new. And, and so let me expand that. Moses, Moses' temporary radiance was that skin-deep reflection of glory that faded, but the new covenant glory comes not by being conformed to the law, but by being transformed by the Spirit as we behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled faces. That means it's better, it's permanent, it's sure, it's, it's more, it's growing transformation. It's, it's, it's on and on. In other words, he's not just saying, you know what, if you're a Christian, you're going to get a little bit better every day, every year, until you get to heaven. That's not, I'm not trying to insult there there's some truth to that there's a there's a but that's not his point this is a far more sweeping statement than that it's a far bigger vision of transformation of sanctification than that no we have a completely new orientation that's what he's saying we are we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory and to another that's expanding horizon as we behold the glory of Christ and are and are are being transformed into that same image and so does now does it always feel like that brothers and sisters <laughs> does does greater glory seem to always characterize your life experience does it always feel glorious Every time you come here, every time you, you wake up in the morning and have your quiet time, it's just glorious. And no, it's not, is it? Sometimes it's, it's slow. Sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it, it doesn't feel very glorious at all. But, but this transformation by the grace and glory of the gospel is at work in us. It is. And it's better. It progresses steadily despite setbacks, failures, it's better because it's what the, you, this is the glory the glory is of the grace that comes with it the glory is uh, that, 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 that old that old glory of having the letter of having the law of having, having Moses we could, we could see our failures we could try we could try but we couldn't match up and there was no grace if we failed there was no mercy in the law and now in Christ he's fulfilled it so we, we still we're striving we're we're, 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 we're obeying but there's grace. There's grace. He helps us in our weakness. It's better. Fifth and finally. Let me back up one. John 17. I just, just to get a vision again. Now, this is one of the passages that I was really tempted to go to this Sunday. But just a simple statement. Simple but mind-blowing statement that Jesus makes in his, his priestly prayer as he's praying for the disciples and those who will come to believe in his name who aren't yet but they will and he says and he prays this he prays the glory he's praying to the Father the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. I mean, what a, what a profound vision from glory, from one degree of glory to another. That, 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 that was, that's just would blow the minds off uh, away of those, those, those uh, first believers who coming from that Jewish background thinking that this greatest glory was in Moses and Jesus says something like that. You're brought you're brought in, as it were, to this beautiful Trinitarian reality. Not that you've become a fourth member of the Trinity, 
but that you, God brings you into himself in a relationship and you share in his glory. That's so, so profound. Finally, he says, we are being transformed by another. And I'll just be brief. He, he says, and finally, for this, all of this, it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And we say, of course it does. Would there be any other way? No. Again, it's, it's not that we're passive, but it's that we're powerless apart from the Spirit's enabling. This is why the rivers of all of our thoughts run towards God when we think about our growth. This is ultimately the greatest glory of the new covenant. It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is it's his doing. So, so growth, it's ultimately God's doing. As we all, with, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So because it's his doing, it will happen. The focus of our lives, the focus of our church, it doesn't ultimately need to be upon the growth, it needs to be upon the grower. Not on our performance, but upon the producer, the Lord. And this is wonderfully encouraging for us, brothers and sisters, in whatever day and time the church exists. But i just thinking of our context. We, we don't have to worry, and I, I know there's a temptation here, to worry Christians, churches are going to stop growing if the culture around us keeps crumbling. Listen, you think the church at Corinth was in an I, ideal kind of environment to grow? and thrive as a church no not at all it was surrounded by a grotesquely corrupt culture rampant immorality idolatry corruption and on and on it was swimming in religious syncretism it was there were there were racial tensions that were in in that community there were the persecution of christians was on the rise and so you and I, we would write corinth off as a lost cause and think no chance that there's ever going to be a a strong, healthy, thriving, gospel-advancing church there. But we'd be wrong. Now, did the church have its faults and weaknesses? You better believe it. They had some crazy stuff going on there. And Paul was writing to deal with some of that. And we have our problems too, brothers and sisters. But I want to encourage you to encourage us in this, with this, is that growth isn't just possible in idyllic environments. The gospel doesn't need perfect soil conditions and the perfect climate to take root and grow it can grow anywhere it can grow here no matter what we face and in fact it often thrives in the harshest of environments so our context our local state national global political social cultural all of these there are lots of perceived and real threats that are there and i don't want to minimize those at all this is why we pray. This is why we get involved in these things. But our hope for growth isn't found in, it's not found in looking at ourselves like, hey, we won't, we won't ever stumble and fall. No, that's not it. It's not, it's not, it's not we don't look outside of the culture and say, well, what's the potential for the growth of the church by looking at a bunch of uh, matri- you know, metrics and stuff? No, where do we look? We look to Christ. <laughs> to the, the possibility for, for growth, for transformation is directly proportionate to the power and the glory of Christ. That's what we see. This church can continue to be a greenhouse for growth by the Spirit's working in us as the, as the climate of the culture 
if it, even if it becomes harsher and harsher towards Christianity. But don't, don't let your vision for growth in this church be determined by the news headlines, by judicial rulings, by statistics, by morality, by statistics on morality. But let a large vision for growth in this church body emerge from a large view of Christ's glory and the Spirit's power. So our prayer, our, our shared vision is that Baraka would continue to be, as we have been by God's grace, a, a growing church and, and for, for decades to come or until Christ returns. Not content with just a couple hundred people who come together, you know, on occasion to sing some songs, listen to a sermon, chat with a few people, then go on with a normal life. No, I pray that Baraka would continue to be by the spiritual, Spirit's powerful working, a, a greenhouse for growth. That our story will be one of lives, as Paul says, that are transformed as we all, together, brothers and sisters, we all with unveiled face by Christ's work, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the the, the way we can look back and say, Lord, th- thank you. you. You have been at work. You, we see the growth. Sole Deo Gloria. And Lord, we, we want to continue to be pointing one another to, to Christ and beholding his glory together and believing Jesus Christ together so that you will continue to transform us into that same image one degree of glory to another and we know that it's the work of your spirit the Lord who does this so we look to you Father we look to you we pray that you would uh, you would set before us Father a, a vision for the church that isn't informed and isn't shaped by the, the kind of the social expectations and the cultural norms but it's shaped by the scriptures and so the glory of God that comes shining through the scriptures, Father, would be is the banner that flies over our church and our expectations of how you will work and transform lives here. For your sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.